Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. It is time to talk about The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton. This was a very different read for me, something that I haven't approached uh, on the show in a really long time. Very used to English classic literature around this time, around the turn of the 18th to the 19th century, but American literature, not so much. So let's jump right in. We're going to talk about some biographical information about Edith Wharton to contextualize this book a bit better, not only for myself, but also for you all, and then get into the plot of this novel, which is very, very straightforward, and then some analysis points, and I also want to look at and analyze some quotes. Let's get into the autobiographical input from Edith Wharton's life. Edith Wharton was born into an American upper-class family and, in turn, the upper-class society. A lot of her literary avoir is around the topic of social criticism, however, so this pinions her into a very intricate web in terms of her societal position because on the one hand she is a part of the very aristocracy that she is trying to uh, criticize and on the other hand um, it's a loving criticism that she delivers. Her debut into society as a young woman eligible and looking for a husband was in 1879 and she finished that season in 1885 with her marriage uh, to the man whose last name was Wharton, who she, uh, whose last name she took on. Her literary role model, and she started writing earlier on but continued and upped the antics on her writing um, even more throughout her life. Her literary role model whom uh, she befriended and was quite close with, um, as records show, was Henry Henry James. Um, And what I found interesting was what she admired in James's writing and his output was his form, his focus on a certain literary form or a certain literary output in terms of the form and also ethical issues of the time. And so Wharton, as with many, many other writers, you could maybe argue all writers, but Wharton was definitely not only a product of her time, but also somebody who looked to explore or also later criticize the different aspects of society during her time. Edith Wharton began writing and publishing with magazines and she largely published short stories and short story collections until she started writing novels 
House of Mirth, which is the novel we will analyze and review today, was published in 1905, so quite a bit later after, for example, her marriage in 1885. And she's most known, I would say, for her, her book The Age of Innocence, which was published a bit later on and won the Pulitzer Prize in 1920, so she is a very lauded figure in literary history and in American literary history. Um, Ethan Fromm is another very, very popular novel of hers from 1911, a bit later than the second novel, earlier than Age of Innocence. And there's another book, but a short story collection, this time called Shingu and Other Stories from 1916. That's also quite well known from her. In 1907, going back to the biographical information about Wharton's life, she moved to France from America, and in 1913, she divorced her husband. She lived in France until her death in 1937. In terms of this book in particular, what I found striking about it as a general overview is that she did serialize this book um, and that definitely has an impact on not only the flow of the novel but also perhaps some passages that are maybe more lengthy than they could have been. We're not sure whether she was paid by the word or whether she was paid per issue but if she was paid by the word it might have been some um, fuel to the fire there in terms of making her work a little bit longer than it could have been. So there's some passages in the book that are very uh, just long, extemporaneous. They have a lot more maybe information or description than they could. Um, and again, all of these different factors, whether it's the publication, whether it's Edith Wharton's position in society, um, being a part of society and also criticizing it, but not wanting to go too far, it's a very precarious situation for her as an author, and again, all of these factors impact the way the book was written. Let's move on to the plot. Largely, this book is a social criticism of New York society in the 19th century. We're talking later 19th century, around the time when Wharton herself was a member of the upper class, Estaton. The main character's name is Lily Bart, and it's a story of a prominent or once prominent young woman who eventually falls into disrepair and despair and ends up dying of a drug overdose in what essentially is a poor boarding house. Part of this story of Lily Bart is that Lily Bart as a character is very, very naive. She always thinks that she's going to be able to one-up society itself. She thinks she's going to be able to come out on top no matter what, um, even when her finances start taking a turn, uh, a decided turn for the worse, I should say. Um, she doesn't really consider marriage uh, until it's too late, and so this unwillingness or maybe inability to marry is a theme that runs through the novel and eventually contributes to Lily Bart's 
failure in uh, keeping her role in the upper-class society. There is a strong sense of women's rights, women's activism, women's role in the novel. It's not, I would not personally call it a political novel in that sense, but it definitely highlights and showcases the limitations of a single young woman, especially one on the border of society, somebody who is upper class, especially in terms of their tastes and their mannerisms and their friends, but not necessarily upper class financially. And that's something that differentiates American and British society, um, not only at this time, but I think as a general catch-all <laughs> moving forward, which is that um, the society at this time is not only decided or parsed by money. It's also decided by who you know, your social circle, all of these things. And so there's several points within this novel where members that are extremely rich, like upper upper class, end up having some social fluidity, including Lily herself. And that's something that I found very distinct and different about this social novel as compared to, for example, novels in the Victorian British kind of area. Addiction was a very surprising and I would say uncanny note to this novel. The novel seems very superficial, but there's a lot of themes in it that contribute to a very I think deep analysis, which we'll get into in the following sections of the episode. But the addiction that Lily Bart develops throughout the novel, and there's several addictions, but um, one, for example, is at the beginning of the novel, she starts taking up Bridge, which is a game um, that people still play today, um, and that game especially was paid for large played for large sums of money in this time, and so she's essentially gambling away what little money she has. She had explained an instance where she had won a sum of money once, which was gone before she knew it because of her other frivolous spending, which could perhaps also be labeled as an addiction. Her amount that she spends on dresses and frivolous things and, um, yeah, essentially things she can't afford. And she ends up later and later in the novel, the farther that she catapults herself down to lower and lower classes, the more addictions she takes on. So there's a caffeine addiction for sure. She describes the amount of tea that she's drinking and the strength of all the tea that she's drinking. So she's taking very, very strong tea many, many times a day. Um, and if you know anything about tea, I'm a huge tea fanatic. Tea has a comparable amount of caffeine to coffee, uh, depending on the tea, but I'm assuming here that it's sort of a black tea consistently, which is uh, quite high in caffeine sometimes. Um, if you're taking it very, very strong, it's like taking black coffee very, very strong. Um, it's really saturating the water with a lot, a lot of tea, a lot of, a lot of substance. 
So she's using almost these socially acceptable measures as addictive uh, habits um, in the first part of the novel and then later on she describes almost in passing, which I find very interesting from a narrative perspective, all of the different other <laughs> things that she's doing like taking pills, um, she is using uh, prescriptions at the pharmacy that um, are expired, no longer recommended, she's taking larger doses than recommended, um, perhaps if memory serves well, uh, prescriptions that are not hers. So it's a lot of um, spiraling down into the abyss, not only socially and societally, but also individually. Lily Bart doesn't seem to be able to accept, again, the reality around her. A lot of the novel is this fantasy world that Lily has constructed for herself. And what I love about the third person narration of the novel is that we're able to get a sense of the other characters' thoughts and feelings around Lily as well. For example, a young lawyer named Sinjin, uh, whom Lily falls in love with, uh, throughout the course of the novel, and he <laughs> sort of with her, um, not very practically, however. And a lot of these characters, interestingly, seem to get caught up in the same spell that she's uh, projecting for herself. And there are characters who do her grandiose favors, and she asks a lot of her friends uh, throughout the different scenes in the novel throughout the different phases of her decline and um, again a lot of these characters seem to be convinced of the different very fleeting perceptions that she's trying to project. Eventually however as I spoiled a little bit earlier all of these attempts end up falling short especially as we go towards the end of the novel. Lily Bart relies on her feminine charm and her beauty to propel her forward in life, and that ends up ultimately not being enough, especially when she fails to marry, and essentially at this time fails to succeed at what society demands of her. What she's so good at doing on the micro level, she's so good at wrapping individuals around her little finger, and she's so good at talking the talk and walking the walk and looking as she's supposed to and etc etc. She's really good at playing roles, but when it comes to making long-term decisions, when it comes to uh, doing anything of substance, she drops the ball and she does have some charitable pursuits and everything, but a lot of these, again, are very fleeting. They talk about, um, in the novel, uh, the different feelings that she gets when she pursues these charity events or appears for charity to other women. You know, it's a very, again, moment-to-moment, day-to-day kind of pursuit, and that ends up leaving her hand-to-mouth in a very real way towards the end of the novel. And just when Sinjin decides to, at the end of the novel, huge spoiler, 
commit to her, um, or at least, yeah, he goes to see her, um, ends up overdosing and dying in probably the worst possible way. Um, and it's not a novel, just from my own personal perspective now, this is not a novel I super enjoyed reading. It's a very harsh novel and it's not a kind novel to the world that not only Edith Wharton lived in, but also the world that Lily Bart lived in. And to an extent, as a reader, I personally was drawn into the different charms and frivolities of Lily Bart's world, as I often do with other similar novels, especially those from the Victorian era in England. Um, but in that sense, I was sorely, sorely disappointed uh, at the end of the book when things don't turn out as they often do. And that's not to say that the ending of the novel makes the rest of the novel disingenuous or counteracts the rest of the novel. I in fact think that the end brings the novel a certain depth that it maybe didn't have until I realized what was actually going to happen to Lily Bart. And it's that there's so many moments in the novel where as a reader I realized oh my goodness, she's really going down this path and down and down and down. And it's a slow spiral. It's an agonizing one. It's one that has so many false pretenses and so many false hopes. And that's something, again, that if you want to consider reading this novel, keep that in mind. It is uh, not a light novel to read by any means. And there's a ton to think about and a ton to work through with it. Let's move into the analysis. Something about this general society that Edith Wharton illustrates through the various characters, and I talked a lot about Lily and some about Sinjin in the plot summary, but there's a very tactical move that I made in not talking about the other characters, and that's because a lot of them are just very, very superficial. And they are, I think, um, purposefully portrayed as such. And this society is extremely empty. It's illusory in some regard. Uh, and again, just superficial is the word that I would attribute to it. There's a lot of mirroring uh, where the women will kind of trade behaviors or opinions or ways of dress and try them on for themselves. Uh, the men like to do only what the richest among them uh, do, you know, whether it's a new hobby or a new club or a new sport or a new drink, whatever it is. Um, there's a lot of escapism uh, and, you know, wealth is a tool uh, from this time that was often played around with as a way to escape the hum humdrum quote-unquote but just the vast arrays of nothingness that these people did um which i know is a harsh harsh criticism but definitely one that prevails in the novel there's just so much escapism um and one of the i think fascinating things about um part of the novel is that there's a lot of vacations and people go to like the Caribbean or other places from New York or they're very very fancy 
um, estates near New York and they're taking a vacation from a life that is already a vacation. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm not sure if I can come up with anything that's more escapist than that. Gender. I talked a little bit earlier about the role of gender in the novel and the gender theme of this novel very much pertains to what we were discussing earlier with regard to Lily's various illusions about her own life. She thinks that as someone who is young, relatively, she's approaching sort of the end of what's acceptable as a single woman in that time, but as a relatively young, um, very just beautiful woman, there's sort of no words for how beautiful Lily Bart is said to be, that she is able to um, continue her existence on favors and um, continue her existence kind of as a parasitic attachment to various other rich friends and families. Um, and this is really highlighted when Lily's aunt dies unexpectedly and her aunt is her benefactor or to put it more clearly, the person who um, whom Lily expects to inherit from. Um, her rich aunt who is very, very old-fashioned in some ways and has very rigid expectations and whom um, took Lily on after both of her parents finally died, um, leaving her in a very desperate position financially. Her aunt is super kind to her, gives her favors, gives her money, um, and Lily ends up having a significant amount of debt throughout the novel, um, and her aunt uh, finds out about this debt very, very shortly before she dies, and ends up leaving Lily essentially nothing, um, compared to what Lily was expecting, which was, you know, hundreds of thousands, I think 300,000, she ends up getting like 10 to 20,000. If you put this situation into perspective, the inheritance that Lily was expecting to get, of course, would have, at least for a while, kept up Lily's lifestyle and maybe even boosted it so that she can continue living on in the very, very upper, like, 1% of 1% classes of society. However, the inheritance that she got, and I think this is not a point to be undermined uh, by any means, is the inheritance she got was a very respectable amount of money. And if invested correctly, if invested um, not even aggressively, I would say conservatively, would have been enough for Lily to sustain some sort of reasonable life. And instead, she has these debts, she has all of these um, illusions, again, about how her life is quote-unquote supposed to go and what she's entitled to, and the amount that she inherits ends up being a, an overwhelming and gross disappointment. Even though she seems to never acknowledge that she had no reason to expect her aunt's money, especially considering her aunt's values, which were very, very different from her own, and especially considering her previous track record with um, the kind of money 
that um, her aunt had or the kind of money at least that uh, she would be managing had she inherited everything. So in terms of the gender idea, the gender theme here, Lily has no power or moral flexibility either um, as a character to change her situation. And that's just definitely exemplified and I think overblown by the situation with her inheritance from her aunt. And the only real sort of power she has is to try to convince somebody on the same level of society to marry her um, or convince other people to do favors for her, which again, you know, the favors thing, it's very fleeting and it ends up not working out in the long term or really for very long at all. And so, um, you know, again, it just shows like how limited, how archaic these structures were in society at this time. And, um, you know, Lily, I have a great quote about this, but there's just um, a kind of a horrible realization that she has, which is that her position and her status is predicated really just on superficial things um, in being a woman, there's just so little that she has to offer, but it's not because of her own... Okay, I will say it's not only because of her own limitations, because she's definitely, again, all these grandiose thoughts and ideas are not helping her here, um, but it's also just this societal pressure. She's learned how to be a pretty object in a room, but anything beyond that seems to really challenge her. This is a quote from page 359 of the Penguin Classics Edition. And this is Lily talking. I have tried hard, but life is difficult, and I am a very useless person. I can hardly be said to have an independent existence. I was just a screw or a cog in the great machine I called life, and when I dropped out of it, I found I was of no use anywhere else. What can one do when one finds that one only fits into one hole? One must get back to it or be thrown out into the rubbish heap. And you don't know what it's like in the rubbish heap. I'll stop there just to say that this continuation is an illustration of part of her illusions, that she was going to marry this very rich man who was in fact no fit for her whatsoever, and this sort of realization of the emptiness that she's produced in her life. So continuing on page 359, quote, her lips wavered into a smile. She had been distracted by the whimsical remembrance of the confidences she had made to him two years earlier in that very room. Then she had been planning to marry Percy Grice. What was it that she was planning now? Unquote. So again, I hope that you can hear the sense of desperation and of like, just that like horrible anxious feeling. I definitely got that from this part of the book when she's sort of like becoming self-aware for the first time maybe in the whole book um, and again there's that interplay of like it's very like Madame Bovary Anna Karenina except the difference between those two books and this one is that those women have some agency in their lives and uh, Lily with a combination of her own naivete and society's constraints doesn't seem to be able to either have agency or act on it or both. 
And the last aspect I wanted to discuss briefly is this wonderful sense of old meets new modernism um, in this time period. So the turn of the 19th to the 20th centuries, especially all of the, I loved all of the like time bound descriptions, all of the little adages that um, Edith Wharton includes. Um, there's a lot of like linguistic phenomenon that are there. For example, there's a um, Malaysian proverb that's quoted in the book. Um, of course, different you know pieces of literature that were very influential at that time, uh, political things somewhat, and this beautiful interaction between, for example, carriages and automobiles in the street and uh, people really, really caring about their dress and people starting to become looser, especially in American society. Um, and again, this social flexibility, which is uh, unique to um, America, certainly of this time, but also, you know, unique to the time, right? There's this sort of newfound ability to move up and down um, depending on a lot of different criterion, but whom. Uh, you might know, for example, or your level of wealth, or your various um, other talents or connections, whether that be business or personal. Um, and that's it's just a beautiful time to read about. And it's probably one of the most fascinating things about this book, in my opinion, the way that Wharton integrates all of these different, very time-specific aspects into a more general expose almost of this society um, and also into the story of Lily Bart. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. This book is not for the faint of heart, I will say that, um, but ultimately it was very very intellectually rewarding um, and it was a very very new type of book for me and one that was definitely posing some <laughs> challenges with my review and analysis, but Nevertheless, I hope that you enjoyed and I hope that if you have read this book or want to read this book, I hope you can touch back with us in the comments. There were a couple sources that I pulled for the autobiographical slash biographical information on Edith Wharton and also on some of the analysis points for this book. Those links are in the description for this episode at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes. You can just find this episode. I have an Etsy store. I don't talk about this often enough at all, and I should. Um, if you have any sort of interest in savings, personal finance, organizing your week, uh, study calendars, all of those products I make 100% from scratch. They're all digital, so they're easy to download. And it's another labor of love and another project that I put a lot of time and effort into. So that link is in the description for this episode, just underneath this podcast, on any platform that you're listening on. And I would appreciate it if you would check the store out. It's called The Elaine Edit, and you can go to etsy.com slash shop slash The Elaine Edit to check out the collection. All right, y'all, I have talked long enough. I will see you next week. Thank you all so much for your time.
If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.